Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charva podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. Today's uh, podcast is a little bit of a last minute decision where uh, I had to uh, you know arrange everything and bring Shrikant sir on. So first of all I would like to welcome Shrikant Telagiri ji on the podcast sir. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So uh, so guys today's podcast is going to be about uh, three blogs and in in those three blogs uh, we are going to be focusing primarily on one blog particularly which uh, shrikant ji had written on the 19th of august uh, the, the blog's title is and that's the title of the podcast too it is called the chronological gulf between the old rigveda and the new rigveda we're also going to be having a small uh, discussion about two other blogs one which was written by shrikant sir on 18th may which was titled the ikshvakus in the rigveda and then on 9th of may he had written another blog about the varshagira battle in the rigveda so sir i want to start with the chronological gulf between the old rigveda and the rigveda uh, new rigveda so sir uh, so let us start by uh, maybe you giving us a base uh, summary of uh, what was the aim behind uh, because you have edited this blog i think four or five times and updated it right yeah so so could you give us as a bit but i think i'll uh, put it in a book for, uh, finally because i i keep on getting new words to add to the list so it will never come to an end if i continue so so that's the thing sir so what is the process so what are, what exactly are we doing when we are talking about so in your blog you have divided it into six uh, six parts right where you call part 1 as the chronology of the rigveda as per the western scholars yeah. then you talk about the old and the new rigveda vis-a-vis the avestan evidence then you yeah. t- talk about so sir could you talk about so let's cover part 1 first so when you say the chronology of the rigveda as per the western scholars wh- what do we mean yeah. by that well see uh, most indians you know have a very orthodox view of the rigveda they feel many of them feel it's a divine book which has existed since the beginning of time it is not written by human beings it is divinely inspired or seen i don't know what they mean by seen but the rishis have seen them and uh, then uh, you know they refuse to accept uh, that uh, you can uh, analyze it historically or anything of that kind so uh actually it is the western scholars they claim that it is a, those with a western outlook who have no respect for the vedas who have divided it into different periods and said that this is old this is new and all that but uh, that is not a very logical way of looking at it actually the rigveda does have different uh, it was composed over a period of over 2000 years now exactly how much over i cannot say maybe 2500 years or maybe 3000 years and the, it was given its final form in 1500 bc which is when i placed the mahabharata i and many other people including conrad else and many others dr sr for example and others uh, so that is when it was completed it was given its final form now after that there were hardly any changes made in it so uh, during that long process of composition of the rigveda there were many periods during which the language kept changing now i don't know if you see, on the internet if you go and see a book uh, any book on the history of the english language for example you'll see how english was say 700 800 or 1000 years ago you won't be able to read a word of it you won't understand you'll think it's german or some unknown language that's how different it was or you have the nanishwari if you see in modern marathi there's such a lot uh, vast difference between it so you can imagine a text composed over uh, over 2500 years many changes must have taken place in it but uh, but uh, it is the western scholars who you know classified that uh, uh, there are uh, the family books 
the rigveda consists of 10 books numbered 1 to 10 of that the books 2 to 7 are called the family books and according to all the western scholars the family books were composed first after that books 1 and 8 were added to it from both sides then 9 and 10 10 is the last one now actually you know the rest of the rigveda was completed almost by 2000 bc but the fine, uh, for 500 years it uh, additions were made into book 10 so it is the appendix to the rest of the rigveda actually and it contains the latest kind of language now uh, for uh, to give you this i usually give this one example because uh, people know this word very well uh, you know what is the word for in sanskrit for night you know it is ratri it is used mm-hmm. all the languages even kannada and telugu have abandoned the original dravidian word and they use the word ratri it is there in all the north indian languages raat ratri whatever uh, different forms of that now sir uh, people will be surprised to know that it is not found in the uh, early parts of the rigveda it is only found in the last parts of the rigveda and then it becomes the main word in later times in the rigveda there are actually two other words which mean night one is kshap and another is nakt now you know that uh, the indo european languages have 12 branches according to all whether you take it as an indian homeland or you take it as a steppe homeland according to all the people you know that uh, branches kept leaving the homeland and uh, departing until finally only a uh, few branches were remaining and of those whether you take them to be in india or in the steppes or somewhere on the way they usually agree that uh, indo aryan and iranian were the two branches which were together after all they had separated from all the other 10 branches so now you find th- this a situation represented in this one word for example ratri is found only in the indo aryan branch it is not found in any of the other island branches then uh, the word kshap is found in the rigveda and in the avesta that is in the indo aryan and the iranian branch so it represents the last stage of the unity between these two branches and uh, you know kshap is found in the avesta it becomes shab in modern persian and we know it in urdu shabnam shabba khair shabbe barat yes. uh, all that sort of things so uh, it is not found in any of the other 10 branches and in all the 12 branches you find the word nakt night latin noctus russian nosti whatever i mean all those words are there you know uh, uh, you can check i have given them in my articles now so you see these are different stages of the rigveda now when i was writing my very first book in 1993 it took around 4 years to research it so i noticed that uh, the people talked about you know new words in the rigveda old words in the rigveda and i was quite intrigued by that i wanted to know where will i get a list of these new words and they had given such words you know like kalpana you know the uh, root kalp from which you got kalp sankalp vikalp kalpana all these words that is found only in the last part of the rigveda or important words like kalyan mangal which are very par- much a part of our religious terminology now those also and many words in fact are not found in the rigveda they appear in the uh, atharva veda and later texts so mm-hmm. you see uh, there is a definite definite uh, chronology of the different parts of the rigveda now i wanted to know which are these new words but i nowhere did i get any uh, peop- any text which has listed all these words so actually during this lockdown you know i decided let me do that task of uh, searching out as many words of as i can and the wow. importance of this is because you know any question any historical analysis i'm not talking about spiritual analysis or something but the historical analysis of the rigveda 
this division into different periods is the most important thing it solves all the uh, problems and it answers all the questions for example when you say spoke wheels were invented somewhere around 2200 bc you find that spoke wheels are the yeah the rigveda of the 10 books uh, i the uh, western scholars have given us this classification that 2 to 7 are the old books then come 1 8 9 10 but within the family books 2 to 7 there is one book book 5 which is the latest that is uh, it uh, has more affinity with the non family books 1 8 9 10 than with the other family books so actually you get the rigveda is divided into two parts the old books five old books 2 3 4 6 7 and the five new books 1 5 8 9 10 so uh, this is the basic division any historical question when you examine from the on the basis of this division you get the answer like uh, you know people were arguing like there was an argument going on on the internet that uh, spoke wheels were uh, originated in 2200 bc and since they are found all over the rigveda that means the rigveda was composed definitely well after 2200 bc but then i said no you look uh, that was in uh, 18 years ago this debate so i immediately pointed out i went and examined where do you find the references to spokes in the rigveda and believe it or not every single reference is only in the new five books it is nowhere in the old five books now this is one word see you cannot uh, derive history from one word you know the western scholars derived uh, history from a word anas it actually yeah. means someone who babbles who does not talk distinctly but they decided it was anas but they decided it was a nas which means noseless people and then they decided that uh, yes the original dravidians had flat noses so they were these people called them noseless because these people had aristocratic roman noses so that was the way they derived a history from just one single word misinterpretation of one single word now uh, so i got the chance you know when this uh, question came of the uh, mitanni now you know people say that the mitanni uh, according to the aryan theory the mitanni the iranians the mitanni are actually indo aryans they belong to the indo aryan branch now according to them the indo aryans and iranians came to central asia from south russia from the steppes and then there they developed this common indo iranian culture of the after that they separated into two the vedic people came to india and the iranians the proto iranians that is the avesta and pre avestan people they went into afghanistan and later they spread to the west to iran and all that now the thing is that uh, i in my uh, book in 2000 Eight, twelve years ago, the Rigveda and the Avesta, the final evidence. I examined all these common words, name types, and other things, and I showed that the common, the rich common culture, uh, common to the Rigveda and the Avesta and the Mitanni, is found only in the five new books. It is completely and totally missing in the five old books. Now, in the five old books, certain hymns have been taken out by the scholars as redacted hymns by the Western scholars. that is why i have given this first section on the western what the western scholars have said now they have given various criteria by which they have uh, arrived at their conclusions in my book in uh, 2000 itself 2000 i had uh, given many more criteria all of which in fact confirm the western classification so you see this uh, classification is absolute now when i examine the mitanni and the uh, rigveda uh, and the avesta the data from these three sources i found that uh, all of it is found only in the new books now if this culture was pre rigvedic in central asia before the aryans entered india 
then it should be found in the oldest parts of the rigveda and then it should slowly peter out you know culture keeps changing but in fact it is completely and totally absent in the old five books and it is found in the redacted hymns and the new books so that has been the basis of my uh, 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 listing of the words since 2008 however in this particular article which i wrote now i decided let me go outside the uh, ambits of the avesta and mitanni because within the rigveda it is the western scholars who have decided see this word is like kalpa kalpana and kalyan and uh, mangal they are not found in iranian and uh, uh, mitanni they are purely rigvedic words but they belong to the second layer that is the new books so then i searched out all the uh, new words like that now even within the old books you know there are the three old books 637 in that order then there are the middle books 4 and 2 so there is a vocabulary because there there also there is a chronological gap and uh, in the that middle period also many new words came into being so then uh, that is why my article has six sections the first is i have shown see this is the division of the rigveda into five old and five new books it is as per the western scholars so no one can accuse me that you are making up your own stories and all this is what they witzel has even shown a chart in his book one of his articles which i have always quoted where he shows how they were formed in these stages now so what we are seeing is something which is as per the western scholars classification firstly so it is not something we are going against them so uh, that uh, we can uh, people can say how do you know do, how do you know you know better than them then second thing is i have given the vedic avestan and mitanni words which i have already always been given since 2008 in the last uh, 10 years that is the next section and then is the section on the new words which there is a massive uh, list of such words as i said as i keep on searching i find more and more but i don't know how many times i can uh, Uh, keep revising that article so i'll have to make it into a book where i will give the full analysis of the language but uh, in this section in the of the new words you find that those new words cover every single hymn in books 8 9 and 10 and it only leaves out 15 hymns in books 1 and 5 of the new books so of the five new books three of them are covered completely by these new words and uh, two of them are covered almost completely leaving out only 15 hymns and those 15 hymns correspond exactly to my classification of the rigveda in the 2000 book as well as the 2008 book because see book 1 is a new book but it consists of many upamandalas belonging to different periods now i classified in 2000 even before i had analyzed these words i had classified the, that which of those were old upamandalas which were middle and which were new now exactly the uh, 15 uh, 8 hymns which uh, do not have these words new words and middle words they all belong to that old and middle category only they belong to those upamandalas which are classified as old and middle so all the upamandalas which are classified as new like uh, 8 9 and 10 every single hymn is covered by these new words and book 5 as we know is a family book so it is actually older than the other non family books but it is comes after the other family books you know uh, means i said five books are uh, six books are family books but of that book five alone is a new book so it is a family book therefore connected to the old books at the same time it is a new book so it is connected to the new books it's a middle position so there you find seven hymns which have still not got new words so everything fits in perfectly so uh, it shows i mean uh, this shows 
it gives complete evidence. There are around, uh, I think, uh, three, uh, around uh, 3,813 words which are found okay. in these new books. And in the 280, 280 old hymns of the five old books, not a single word appears even once. Mm -hmm. So you see, the, the gulf is so great. The difference between the languages is so great. Now, people know that, uh, many, I mean, those who know, scholars and uh, linguists and uh, those who know Sanskrit very well, they know that uh, classical Sanskrit is different from Vedic Sanskrit. You know, Vedic Sanskrit had tones. That is, it had a tonal system where every word has one particular uh, a tone, uh, uh, one particular letter in a, one particular uh, akshar in a higher tone called the Udata tone. And because of that, the word's meaning can change also if that uh, thing changes. But uh, that tone, uh, tone was completely gone even in classical Sanskrit, whereas it has been retained in two languages only today, in Punjabi and in Konkani, your language and my language, incidentally. <laughs> so uh, that is the uh, thing. So classical Sanskrit is so different. You know, you think of the sound as something which is found in South Indian languages and Marathi, but the Vedic Sanskrit had and even plus H. So you see, it had a, even its sound system was different. Its grammar was completely different. And as I have shown, the vocabulary was so different that uh, most of the words we know in Sanskrit today were completely non-existent in the Rig Vedic language. So that, that is known to linguists and uh, Sanskrit scholars. But within the Rig Veda, that there is such a vast gulf between the old books of the, the language of the old books and the language of the new books. This is something mm -hmm. that I had to show once and for all in detail. And as I said, more research will uncover more words. So it is, I mean, it is absolutely clinching evidence. So, sir, uh, so how did you come up with your own internal chronology of the Rig Veda? Because uh, yeah. So like the difference between you and the Western scholars would be the Western scholars go two, three, four, six, and seven, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah. then they go yeah. five as the bridge and one, eight, nine, ten. But in yeah. your case, you say six is the oldest one, right? Yeah. Now, how did you come up with that decision that six is the oldest one or why is your chronology? So you have come up with the internal chronology within the old books too. Now, how yes. did you come up uh, with that internal chronology? Yeah, because see, they have taken three criteria. They have, see, they have firstly divided the family books from the non-family books because there are certain criteria like, like you know, the family books. Are, uh, the hymns are arranged in a particular way. First, there are the hymns to Indra, then there are the uh, Soma, sorry, then the hymns to Indra and that, so on. Whereas the new books, uh, they are not arranged in that way. Secondly, in the first uh, old books, you know, the uh, apart from the uh, deity to whom they are addressed, they also had, uh, arranged according to the meter and according to the number of verses. Mm -hmm. Whereas none of this is there in the new books. Then mm -hmm. the language, as I said, the language of the new books, even the Western scholars had discovered so many book, uh, words which show that mm -hmm. the new books have different words from yeah. the old book. Now, uh, the other criteria I used was, you know, that before each hymn, the uh, reciter is supposed to recite the deity, the rishi and the chandas, that is the composer, the deity of the hymn and the uh, uh, meter in which that hymn is composed. Mm -hmm. Now. Those uh, composers, you know, you can arrange them in a certain order, not every single one, but you can get the general order because see, in some, some are composed by Vishwamitra, some are composed by his 
descendant Madhuchandas Vaishwamitra. Okay. Another is composed by Jeta Madhuchandas, who is a descendant or uh, son of Madhuchandas. So you know okay. that the uh, they come in that order. Now, if you take all the orders in the Rigveda and you arrange them at the books, then you get this order, which I have come to six, three, seven other old books, four, two other middle books, and uh, yeah. five, one, eight, nine, ten other new ones. Now, another criterion is within the hymns there are references to people, and they are also related to each other. Like in this book, sixth yeah. book, there is a reference to Bharata, the very ancestral rishi of this ancestral uh, uh, king of this mm -hmm. dynasty. He is referred to as a person from the past. Then many of the ancestors of Divodasa are referred to. Yeah. Srinjaya and uh, all that. Uh, then uh, Divodasa's son Pratardana is also referred to. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is obviously the oldest book. The next two books, three and seven, are are around the period of Sudas, who is a descendant of Divodasa. Okay. And book four is uh, uh, of the period of Sahadev and Somaka, who are descendants of Sudas. Mm -hmm. So that leaves only book two. Which uh, is seems to be out of the uh, this uh, dynastic uh, line, and the surprising thing is that fifth book, book two, is not uh, Gritsamada is not referred to in any other book, and Gritsamada does not refer to any other rishi in their book. So it is a kind of isolated uh, sort of book. So the first four are six, three, seven, and four in that order. Now another thing is you know the uh, there was a uh, when they were making these books. They followed certain criteria. For example, the first, uh, these books are called family books. Now you see, book six is composed only by Bharadwajas. Now Angirasas, Bharadwajas are a branch of Angirasas. Mm -hmm. The other branch being, you know, the uh, Gautamas, and another branch being Dirghatamas. Now all these hymns are composed only by one branch of one family, that is the Bharadwaja Angirasas. Now the next one, Vishwamitra. The book of Vishwamitra also Vishwamitra is, is there as the composer in every single hymn. Mm -hmm. But in one hymn you find Jamadagni who is a Bhrigu, not a Vishwamitra. He is a joint composer in one or two verses. So you see that someone from outside the family has made an entry into that mandala. Then you see Vasishta, uh, this thing, Vasishta's book, uh, you will see the book 7, mandala 7. Yes. You yes. see that again Vasishta is the composer in all the hymns. but. In some of them, there is a Angirasa who is a joint composer of the full hymns with Vasishta. So you see now, although in all these three books, the family of the book is composer of every single hymn, but you know, other families make an entry in three different stages. Now, yes. if you see book four, which is next, you see it is composed by the Vamadeva Angirasas. Mm -hmm. That is the Gautamas. But there are four hymns which are completely composed by other rishis. And they are uh, belong to the uh, Brugu family. Yeah, so Mahati Bhargava, I think. So you see, uh, Bhrigu's family is a different family because according to the Rigveda, there are 10 families, each with uh -huh. its own Aparishtha. So yes. these Bhrigu belong to a different family. So you see, you see the uh, all the five old books, they have slow loosening of the family grip, so to say. And then yes. when you come to the new books, 5, 8, 1, 9, 10, you find that they, they are not family books. All kinds of families are there in all the books. And the 10th mm -hmm. book, as I said, is the last one. Uh, this book, in fact, has so many hymns which you cannot even identify the family of the composer. Mm -hmm. There are fictitious names or the names of the deities itself are given as the composers and things like that. So it was, as I said, it was an appendix uh, to the main Rigveda composed between uh, uh, 2000 and uh, 1500 BC. Okay. So you see all these different criteria which are given, all of them actually 
confirm the western classification but only give it a more fine fine tune that classification so to say as you said the old books you get the exact order now you know people had been rejecting this all the time but now i think this particular article it shows how even before this see uh, it is in three stages actually first is the data i had been giving for 12 years the mm -hmm. vedic mitanni avastha data avastan data which shows that the new books have a totally different vocabulary from the old books now to that i added all this new uh, se another section giving all the new words which are not connected with the mitanni avastha mm -hmm. and then i gave another this thing to show how within the old five old books there is this division between the oldest three and the middle two Mm -hmm. because there are words which were came into being in the middle period which are found in the new books but they are not found in the oldest three books mm -hmm. so i think uh, this and uh, in that process you know i added two more sections as you must know like uh, panchajanya words like panchajanya or yeah, yeah. or uh, words like uh, you know saman samaveda uh, yajush that is the yajurveda and uh, atharvan they are found yeah. only in the new books because you know the composition of those things that started alongside the uh, rigveda in the new period though they were finalized at a much later period the final form was after 1500 bc yes but their composition had started during the new period itself so so now let's go into the next part sir which is uh, part 3 uh, and uh, so i i guess i can club it with part 3 and 4 together so um, maybe 2 3 and 4 together where uh, you talk about uh, the the new rigveda vis-a-vis -vis the avestan evidence and then you talk about the new books and period and the new world so what are we looking at in those areas no it is the same thing in the in that avestan section there are words which are in common with the avestan and the mitanni okay whereas these are new words which are not found in the avestan mitanni they are rigvedic words only but uh, mm -hmm. they were not Uh, part of the common culture you know that common culture maybe they were more eastern the rigveda covered a big area so these yeah. must have been words developed in the eastern parts and those must have been words which developed in the western parts from where the iranians and mitanni departed okay that may be one explanation or it may be after they departed words continued to evolve and new words continued to come into being which were not taken by them fair enough fair enough so now if i was to so uh, so uh, so let us now sir uh, try and get a summary of all the evidence and uh, uh, and i want to keep the part 6 where you talk about the three other veda sahitas and the four other tribes may uh, yeah. uh, uh, let's let's hold on to that for a little later but now if yeah. i was to take a summary of uh, the entire evidence so uh, so let me try and play the devil's advocate here let me try and uh, my best to give you uh, counter questions here so wh what if somebody says that um, but the rigveda is uh, 1500 bc people came from the steppes and the people who came from the steppes around 1500 bc these are the people who got the rigveda so how does it matter uh, whether it's the new rigveda or the old rigveda so what do we tell to, uh, tell to those folks because your date of the rigveda is very different from the conventional understood yeah. date of the rigveda so so why don't you explain to everyone how was that date of 1500 bc also come up with yeah that date of 1500 bc comes because you know there are two sort of brackets within which they want to bring in the aryan invasion first bracket is 3000 bc because that is the period in which you know all the 12 branches have common words for say copper or for uh, parts of the wheel and the cart and things like that which proves that all the 12 branches were together in one place at that time wherever that homeland was and they started 
separating from each other and going in different directions only after 3000 BC. So if they want to bring the Aryans into India, they can't bring them at in 3000 BC. They have to bring it much later. And the second bracket is the Buddhist period. We know the, the period of the Buddha. We know that before the Buddha, there were many dynasties for hundreds of years, covering the whole of North India, right up till Bihar and further. And uh, it is all recorded because we have Greek texts, we have uh, Chinese, and various other foreign sources also talking about all this uh, Mauryan kingdom and the, before that, the Buddhist period before that. So there are these, these are the two brackets, 600 BC or so, and uh, 3000 BC or so. So between that, somewhere they have to bring it, bring them in. Now they chose the, because uh, they saw that it, uh, the Rigveda shows no knowledge of iron. So they said it was in the pre-iron age. And then, you know, when they wanted to bring a, a, them into India, all the way from South Russia, it was a very long process, part of which they claimed was shared by the in Iranians. So they had to account for all those different, different periods. They couldn't bring them over in uh, 100 years or 50 years. They had to cover more than a thousand years. And there had to be more than a thousand years before the Buddhist period for them to have entered India. So it was like a sort of compromise date. But uh, now this Avestan Mitani evidence completely disproves it for a simple reason that because according to their theory, the Mitani are Indo-Aryans, right? They are not Iranians. Now, they are, uh, where did they separate from the uh, Vedic people? Because they are found in Syria and Iraq, the big Mitanni kingdom, which was one of the most powerful kingdoms after that area. They fought with the Egyptians. They ruled the most major part of Iraq and Syria for over 100, 150 years. So in 1500 BC or so. And that is the period when they claim Aryans came to India also. So how is it that Aryans came to India as well as to Syria, Iraq at the same time? So then of course they took a compass and you know drew that uh, their favorite place, Central Asia. And so from it was from Central Asia that they divided into two. One went to West Asia, one group came to India and those were the Mitanni, these were the Vedic people who composed the Rigveda. That is their calculation. But if that is so, as I said, Whatever is common in the Rigveda and the Avesta should be found and the Mitanni. It should be found in the old books. However, it is totally missing in the old books. It is found in the new books. So which means that they did not separate in a pre-Rigvedic period. Because if they did, then the common elements would have been found in the old books, not in the new books. The very fact that they separated in the new books and that there is such a wide chronological gulf. I want to emphasize that gulf again and again between the old and the new books, which means that since they went in the new books, a uh, period of the new books, that means the period of the old books was much older than the period of the new books when they separated from each other. So what about the period of the old books? As per their theory, they came from Russia, South Russia, from the steppes. So if the new books, they claim that they separated in Afghanistan or uh, Central Asia, then the geography of the old books should be somewhere in the step near the steppes. But on the contrary, the geography is completely to the east of the Saraswati. They don't know the western areas of Afghanistan and all. I have shown all that in detail with maps and charts and everything. So um, the old books of the Rig Veda completely situated in Haryana and westernmost Uttar Pradesh. This is the area of the old Rig Veda, of the Bharata Purus. And that period, their language precedes the common language of the Rig uh, Avesta and Mitanni and the Rig Veda, uh, new Rig Veda. So th that is one fact. Now. So when that means they separated from India because in the old period, if the Vedic people were to in Haryana, obviously then in, people who separated from them in the new period must have left from India itself. 
and if they left from india when when did they arrive in uh, uh, west asia you know the earliest evidence of the mitanni and the kassites is around 1750 bc or so and that time they were had already forgotten the ancestral language they were only vestiges of that you know they had already become west asianized hurianized or whatever means they had accepted the language and culture but they had retained only the ruling clans had retained their ancestral vedic culture so which means that uh, in 17 1750 bc they were already old uh, old inhabitants of west asia if so then when did they leave india and go they can't have left uh, before uh, uh, 2000 uh, after 2000 bc right it must they must have taken at least 300 400 years to go all the way from here and then uh, settle down there and become completely west asianized so if they left india before 2000 bc that means that the new books period of the new books starts well before 2000 bc because the culture of the new books which they took with them had already become a part of their culture when they were leaving india so that culture of the new books must have started long before 2000 bc and then the old books go further back beyond that and as i that's why insist uh, insistently re, uh, referred to the chrono wide chronological gulf because the old books are not just 5 years or 10 years or 50 years before the new books they are hundreds of years before the new books so that takes it back to 3000 bc which is the linguistic date for the aryans being together in their homeland and then separating so even if i have already also given proof of the anus and druhus how they were in india and then they left and they are the other 12 11 branches but even if that proof was not there this simple fact that the old books of the rigveda go back to 3000 bc itself proves on the basis of linguistics that india was the homeland so sir isme uh, there is also always uh, there is this uh, classical uh, conundrum that they always say that oh but uh, the the step people were pastoralist and the rigveda talks about pastoralist people which very interestingly although i remember bb lal in his book has uh, you know gone ahead and uh, given detailed verses of uh, how the rigveda actually talks about even divisions uh, like there is a samrat there is the raja there is a rajan and you know the rigveda yeah. i mean i'm sure you you are aware of it because uh, you've done a far more detailed study and then there are uh, obviously the rigveda talking about docking and trading and stuff like that yeah. it doesn't seem like the rigveda was uh, a book of pastoralist people but um, no. so 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 in your view is the rigveda pastoralist and if not why is it not written by people who are pastoralists See the Rigveda is not is India today pastoralist or was any country pastoralist at any time? You see, pastoralism is a part of the total culture. You know, there are urban aspects, there are pastoral aspects, there are sheep rearing aspects, all kinds of things. Fishermen uh, villages probably people living in forests and uh, mountains. So, what uh, when they say pastoral, uh, what they mean? I really do not know. And the uh, most important thing is. if they were pastoralists and they say that steppe pastoralists came to india and formed the uh, composed the rigveda then did they abandon all their cows and cattle in the steppes itself come here without any cattle for thousands of years remembering the pastoral culture come here and adopt the indian cows native to this area and then uh, again become pastoralists because you see not a single uh, western cattle uh, bone has been found in india the indian cattle are completely distinct from the western cattle so whatever cattle are referred to in the rigveda are indian cattle you know it is the zebu cattle as they called boss indicus versus boss taurus 
now boss indicus is the one which is found in all over that uh, indus area and in fact if you see the wikipedia you will see there were two areas of domestication of cattle one was in west asia around turkey or so and the second was in the indus valley so that was boss taurus which was uh, this thing uh, uh, domesticated there and these were the boss indicus which were domesticated in the what we to today call the pakistan area that is northwestern india the indus valley uh, harappan area now uh, isn't it strange that people should be coming all the way from there as pastoralists and they don't bring any cows and yet they are retaining the pastoral culture and they are managing to reach another area which is also the breeding uh, ground of a different type of cattle and then they make that their own pastoral culture so this whole argument itself is so flawed because the cattle of that area are different from the cattle of this area and the only uh, the rigvedic cattle are all indian cattle so how do you say there step pastoralists who come to india and uh, establish their pastoral culture here so another another question on on the pastoralist aspect and the cattle aspect which i actually <clears throat> find very interesting is i think a few a while ago there was even a paper if i remember correctly that shows the cattle movement was from a particular direction uh i can't remember what exactly the, it was uh, i think the 8000 years ago they have mapped the the i i i forget the 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 exact paper because there are so many papers and you know i'm just blanked out right now but it clearly showed that the movement of uh, i think the cattle movement was in fact on the other direction it was uh, from india the cattle had gone out there and in fact if anything it disproves the aryan migration hypothesis or the aryan invasion hypothesis uh, on the other way i can't remember that but uh, one more question i wanted to address before i start taking other questions and we we deal with the latter parts is the horse now a common thing that everybody says <clears throat> is look at the amount of horse bones you find in europe look at yeah. the amount of bones you find in india it is hardly anything how can that be the case if the aryan if out of india theory is true so what is what is your answer to that uh, shikanji see when they talk about bones why do they only talk about bones in that particular period whichever they want to assign to the rigveda because even after that we know the period of the buddha the period of uh, rama and mahabharat all the uh, epics and puranas they, they were also very horsey in fact there was more if you see the uh, mahabharata horses play a much bigger role in the mahabharata than they do in the rigveda but bones have not been found so uh, what uh, exactly is the logic i don't know and if the aryans brought the horse into india then you should see a trail of horse bones leading from the steppes into india you don't find that and secondly if the aryans had brought the horse into india and uh, like, like you know uh, the portuguese brought many uh, american fruits and vegetables and things into india like you have the chikku it is called chiku in many languages in many it's called sapota now both these words you know are uh, actually latin american words they are not indian words red india original red indian words which are used in our indian language along with the fruit we borrowed the names now if the aryans had brought horses into india why is it that none of the non aryan languages the dravidian the austric etc have borrowed any uh, uh, aryan word into it in fact today all the indo aryan languages use the word ghotaka which is uh everyone says it is not an aryan word it is borrowed from the inhabitants so if the your uh, aryans came into india bringing the horse the natives who never didn't know the horse actually had verses for the words for the horse and the aryans borrowed a word from them isn't that very peculiar i mean what is the logic and as for the horse 
you know it is a true many people try to show that there were horses in india and there was some horse which apparently became extinct uh, thousands of years ago but actually they say it must have been there and all let and some people talk about the number of ribs and all i'll not go into all that let me just say very clearly the horse this horse is not a native of india it is a native of the steppes and step not just steppes in russia it is right till the borders of afghanistan it is a member uh, native and in fact i have in my articles given the most recent articles which say that the oldest evidence of the domesticated horse is in central asia just to the north of afghanistan and as you know the druhus had already migrated there then the anus had already migrated there so although they uh, anus and druhus had all, uh, originated in india they had migrated all over central asia and all these languages kept on developing in co contact with each other you know new innovations kept taking place so obviously an animal which was so common there since 7000 or 8000 years not 2000 3000 years that obviously would be known to them but if you see the rigveda it is in the old rigveda the horse does is very very important because it is a rare animal why do you think in the uh, ashwamedha you know there are two aspects to the ashwamedha one is that a horse is let loose into another kingdom and which whoever tries to capture it uh, if the he does not dare to try to capture it he, it means he has accepted the sovereignty of the king who has let loose the horse now why would anyone try to capture a horse if you saw a dog be running around from another kingdom into your kingdom would you try to capture it if your kingdom was all, already full of horses of dogs i mean so it is because the horse was a rare animal of the north so a stallion you know battle horse or something imported from the north it was imported from central asia into this rigvedic area in the old period you that is why it is in the new books that you find names with ashwa and ratha all the names with ashwa and ratha are found in the new books they are not found in the old books because it is uh, as uh, the horse became more and more important as you know spoke wheels chariots came into being in the period of the new books and uh, then uh, it became more and more important so you see in the mahabharata you see this very great importance of horses and chariots because the mahabharata took place at the fag end of the rigveda so horses you see are not indian but they that they are not being indian does not prove that they were uh, aryans were not indians you know we all eat all these as i said so many american fruits so does that mean that those uh, we also came from americas or something like that means and there was a point when these fruits were not eaten in india so there was also time when horses were not there in india that does not mean that those people also came from the horse areas so so as of now the archaeological evidence for the horse goes like this so i remember again bibilal's book he talks about who was that guy from hungary i think budapest bokonyi who 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 had claimed that they did find uh, yeah. horse bones and there is kind of somewhat of a dispute on that then obviously in sanoli we have a case where we have found some bones and uh, i had wasan shinde who uh, he he is the chief excavator in rakigadi and dr shinde was saying that again on that also one set of scientists say we have found horse bones another set of scientists say we have not found horse bones albeit i still take the point and i understand where you are coming from that the the degree with which the number of amount of horse bones are found are not there but interestingly sir when it comes to the spoke wheel haven't we found uh, spoke wheel samples in two rigvedic sites uh, again uh, uh, they are mentioned with photographic evidence uh, in uh, in bibilal's book uh, uh, rigvedic people uh, if i could uh, you know pick out the book and uh, 
just uh, go go through it right now. I think one was in Banavli. It was in Appendix three dot three, where they have seen uh, spoke wheels, and one was in Rakhigadi in Appendix three dot two, where obviously these are terracotta wheels, and obviously there was one horse. Uh, 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 clay, clay, clay. I think it was a thing, and so it actually kind of goes more with your uh, your thesis, where because it was so rare that maybe the horse was showcased in a particular way. But now that we have covered the horse, I I want to go back to the the last part of your blog, where you talk about the three other Ved Samitas and the four other yeah. tribes. So what is what, what what were you talking about here? See, people say you know the. the first the rigveda was people of course there are the orthodox people who refused to accept that these books were composed at all they were all revealed in one go at the time of the creation or at, at any rate they were seen by the rishis at different times but they already existed since the time of creation so let's not go into all that but uh, generally people ask you know see these western scholars have said rigveda comes first then comes samveda actually samveda is not a separate text it consists of you know hymns taken from the rigveda and set to music almost all the uh, thing uh, all the contents of the samveda derived from the rigveda maybe one or two few additional verses have been added it is the yajurveda which is the next important text it deals with all the sacrifices it even contains a prose sections like the rigveda is completely poetry and then you get the atharvaveda which is a very completely different kind of language and uh, it all kinds of other new things are there in that many of them you know are found in common with the 10th book of the rigveda so Uh, it is not you know that first the rigveda was composed it was closed as a book and then they started the samveda then they closed it then they started the yajurveda then they closed it no in the new period when the new books were being composed at that same time you know they started using uh, singing rigvedic uh, verses as samans they started uh, codifying the sacrifices and they started uh, also uh, the atharvavedic sort of things you know spells incantations or medicinal whatever it is if you see the atharvaveda there are all kinds of incantations you know how to kill a rival wife how to kill an enemy the, that sort of thing or how to cure some kind of disease so that is what you find in the atharvaveda you find it in the 10th book of the rigveda so yeah. this is all you know but the thing is they did not occur in succession you know one book was closed and the second uh, started all were taking place simultaneously in the new period as i said it is only the old books of the rigveda which completely stand out from this whole mass of uh, you know new books atharvaveda avesta mitani all these come in a later period and the five old books of the rigveda stand in a completely different period there's a wide chronological gulf between the two periods all so, right so uh, that's what i wanted to show yeah now so, these words yeah yeah no no please go ahead sir please go ahead no no so these words you know uh, you see the word saman yajus and uh, 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 atharva they are found only in the new uh, books and in the redacted hymns so that shows that you know it it was in the new period that all that composition had started and of course that second thing which i said about the uh, panchajana you know people i don't know why they, this is a big question and many people object to that uh, someone wrote you know that i have insulted rama and krishna by saying that yadus and ikshvakus were not vedikaryans they were not part of the arya dharma now what is arya dharma what is an aryan we are talking like nazis and uh, dravida kalagam is then we talk about uh, aryans as if they are a race or a community there is no such thing as aryans you know in the rigveda and, and this name was given you know because uh, uh, in the rigveda the people refer to themselves as arya the bharatapurus refer to themselves as arya 
and in the avastha the composers refer to themselves as ayre so because of these are the two oldest texts people gave that uh, language family the name aryan but then after hitler that word uh, acquired a bad taste so then they made it a geographical term you know indo germanic or indo european but they continued to call these two branches aryan because they themselves called themselves aryan in the oldest texts but they don't realize that it was they did not call themselves aryan in the modern sense of indo european languages versus dravidian languages or something like that it was you know and i always give the example because uh, fortunately i belong to a community where i have the exact uh, parallel to this you know uh, among the saraswats there in karnataka there are different groups and we have a word called amchigalo means belonging to our community so i i will if i see another person i am a chitrapur saraswat i'll say this chitrapur saraswat to amchigalo he is an amchigalo now amchigalo is not the name of a race or a community or something and a gaud saraswat if he sees another gaud saraswat he would have said to amchigalo means he is a gaud saraswat formerly chitrapur and gaud saraswat didn't use the word for each other now we use it for both it's become an inclusive inclusive term and that is the exactly the way you know the aryans when the uh, rigvedic people called themselves arya they did not mean that purus were aryas they meant that they were purus they were arya because they were purus and it was their book and their community and the iranians in the same way but the vedic people would not have called the iranians arya and the avestan people would not have called the rigvedic people arya although they called each called themselves arya so you see it is not the name of a, it is a word like amchigalo means it it means belonging to our community belonging to our tribal conglomerate that is the meaning of the word so when you say krishna is not an arya what does it matter if he uh, whether he is an arya according to this definition or not because you know that people who want to derive the whole of indian culture from the vedas they think that everything else is later or it is an impurity that is how the extent to which some extremists go that uh, something which is not done in the vedas is a later impurity which has entered our religion and it should be removed i won't go into that here but even then other people you know they just ignore this aspect like we do there are so many 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 things in hinduism which are completely absent in the rigveda in the rigveda they only do yagnas they compose mantras and they pray to the uh, nature gods indra yavayu agni soma they do yagnas they do and they at a certain period of time they also did soma sacrifices which later died out now this kind of culture is found only among the avestan people and the druids of ireland and now even the others like the lithuanians now there is a group of them who have revived their pagan religion and they also follow similar kind because i have seen them they had come for a conference in uh, the north of bombay and uh, i had been there they perform a yagna kind of thing which is the part of their ancient pagan indo european religion so you see this was the, the uh, religion of the anus purus and druyus which we find in the rigveda the avesta and uh, the irish traditions whereas to the east were the other indian peoples the ikshvakus the yadus the turvasus and others who had different things they worshiped idols they built temples they uh, all kinds of thing whatever you see in hinduism today it is not something which has come later it is something which has been there since the vedic times it is as old as the vedas and it was always there but it entered the vedic stream after the vedic literature spell, sp sp spread all over india like for example would you say america came into existence only after the europeans went there and started writing about it it was always there the andaman islands the andaman islands have been islanders have been there for 60 70000 years they claim 
but the earliest reference to them is in books published in london during the colonial period when they studied the andamanese language so are they english people before that you don't find any reference to them in the andaman islands or anywhere else so you see you can't uh, use childish arguments like this so whatever even the jains for example they have a tradition that before mahavir who was at the time of the buddha there was a long line of tirthankaras the buddhists have a tradition that there was a long line of uh, you know previous births of the buddha so mm-hmm. you see all of them hark back to a hori tradition which goes back hundreds and thousands of years before the buddha and mahavira so they are the old traditions of bihar which were not part of the vedic tradition so whether you like to call them arya or not is irrelevant because all these are parts of our hindu religion and we must accept that no we should not go into uh, you know use the nazi or uh, terminology and think that aryan means good and other things means bad yeah so basically pretty much your 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 conclusion is that the rigveda was the book of the purus written from the point of view of the puru tribe and their yeah. interaction with their yeah. neighboring tribes and i i personally i agree with that and that i see no problem purusha, with that. you know manusha means descendants of manu now in the rigveda mm-hmm. they coin a word purusha descendants of puru why not anusha and uh, yadusha and things like that it's only purusha because purus were there uh, uh, they were purus that is it yeah so uh, and just for the record uh, i now i do remember the the name of the paper about the cattle it was in scientific uh, i think it was in nature research uh, the paper was adaptive integration from indicine cattle into white cattle breeds from central italy it was by mario barbato at all and uh, that basically said that european cattle have substantial indian cattle ancestry resulting from multiple gene flow events as old as 8000 years ago just just putting it on the record over here so sir now let's because you have mentioned the ikshvakus so now let's talk about the ikshvakus in the rigveda and uh, obviously you have written a separate blog post about that also so so you have divided into two parts part one is the ikshvakus in the rigveda and then you talk about something called the northwestern connection so so, so yeah. can you give us a brief summary about that too yeah. see the puranas contain all kinds of garbled information so you cannot take them as the standard for deciding vedic history but they do contain traditions you see they tell us about these five tribes they tell us the uh, tell us where these five tribes are located they give us an idea of all this so puranas can be trusted when they fit in with the vedic evidence otherwise you know the puranas as i said refer to Yavanas and Romakas, who are Greeks and Romans, they refer to the Chola, Chera, and Pandya kingdoms of the south, which came into being only uh, during the period of the Buddha or after that. So obviously they cannot, and they push push all these people into the Ramayana and Mahabharata period also, which is obviously much older. So you see, we cannot take the because it contains so many interpolations of every period, you know. And I always give the example of the film uh, Sampurna Ramayana, which was uh, produced in the 60s, Hindi film. in that they showed you know after sita has been carried off uh, rama is wandering in the forest and he sees a sita fall it breaks open and he sees the image of sita in it and there in the ashok one she sees a ramphal and then that's why they are called ramphal and sita fall was the logic of the directors and writers of the film and everyone must have swallowed it and even the directors and almost have thought it that must be it but you know these are uh, fruits were brought by the portuguese but the producer and director uh, writers didn't know that so whatever is there in their period they just pushed it into the story thinking that it must always have been there in india so that is what happened in the buddhist period you know all these ramayana mahabharata were written down and constantly revised and uh, redacted 
so all kinds of things came into being which were not there at the time of rama or which were not there at the time of the mahabharata so let us not judge those periods on the basis of these late texts or the sampurna ramayana film also for that matter that's what i mean so essentially it's actually very interesting and uh, and i kind of get because it's very interesting that in the ramayana we talk about horse driven chariots and a lot of things like that like uh, when when rama goes to dandakaranya his sutta huh. takes him in a horse driven chariot i think it was six or seven horses i don't remember the number of horses too because it is given in that much detail so what we we what we don't know is uh, how much of the ramayana is the original version and how much of these things no, are exactly that current reality imposed yeah. on the the ramayana itself oh no i was oh yes your question was about the ikshvakus and the northwestern ikshvakus now the yeah. point is you know that the ramayana gives a, a list of the ikshvaku dynasty succession a successive list of the kings you know and uh, the puranas also give such a list and then you find some of those kings in the rigveda now the surprising and the common king is of course mandata because you know the mandata is found in the rigveda and in the puranas and trasadasyu and purukutsa are also found in the rigveda and the puranas but they are not, mandata is the only one who is found in the ramayana you know purukutsa kutsa trasadasyu triaruna and the other ikshvaku kings named in the rigveda and the puranas they are not found in the mahabharata ramayana list so why is that that is because you know according to the puranas um mandata was a king whose mother was a puru so he was related to the purus who were to their west and he came to the aid of the purus which is also mentioned per, uh, prominently in the rigveda he came to the aid of the purus when they were facing enemies from the west and he helped them he helped his maternal relations now after that he settled there for some time and then he went back to ayodhya and then he started his dynasty continued but he had also uh, left uh, another dynasty in the northwest which consisted of these people trasadasyu purukutsa and others now the puranas just club together all the ikshvaku kings of the east and the west and then fit them somewhere into the dynastic list however the ramayana gives only the kings of ayodhya in that part it has faithfully maintained that list and the uh, so that is the reason you find ikshvakus in the northwest now another thing is you know you find two rivers of the ikshvaku area and the same rivers with the same name in the northwest that is the gomati and the sarayu now they have nothing to do with purus so how did they reach in the northwest they reached the northwest because it was this ikshvaku dynasty which went from ayodhya and uh, settled down in that area and they carried those names to the northwest in fact uh, the purana uh, i think uh, which text i have mentioned it uh, refers to uh, purukutsa's wife as a pishachi which is in the area of north uh, the uh, you know the gilgit area the much uh, disputed gilgit area now it is in that area that uh, his uh, his wife belongs to that area so he, that is where they were settled and even the, the uh, uh, verses which talk about him giving gifts to the uh, it is on the banks of the suastu that is the swat which is in that area so you see that that was a separate uh, ikshvaku dynasty which went to the north and they were allies of the purus yep but the purus so now he had no connection with the vedic culture all right so so and and no wonder they are not really mentioned a lot in the rigveda too yeah. right you not is the proof yeah yeah and and it's quite clear because the rigveda does not talk about any of these things and uh, it's quite clear rigveda is just about the purus it's, it's anybody who reads yeah. the rigveda 
I mean, I only read it after I read your book because uh, I was like, uh, should I trust Vikantalagiri or not? <laughs> Let me go and read the Rigveda. And then I started reading the Rigveda, and I was like, oh damn, yes, it is like that. And so that that's how it, it ended up for me. And 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 then I completely related to you when you said, when I read the Rigveda, I was like. You know, it is all about them and their point of view, their worldview, their thing. Their, it's always yeah. in like Purus are talking to you. Purus are talking about themselves. It is yeah. never about a pan-India culture in the Rigveda. It is quite clear from the Rigveda. So now, sir, I want to go into another blog that you had written, which I found very fascinating. So that, you know, and then I'll take the audience questions because I have them ready. So you talk about, you've written on 9th May about the Varshagira battle in the Rigveda. Can you yeah. can you tell everybody a bit about that too? Yeah, yeah. See, this is, a, uh, in the Rigveda, you find this battle, uh, the Dasharadne battle, which is the main one. And it names 10 tribes of the Anus. And those tribes correspond exactly to the 10 ancient tribes belonging to four branches of Indo-European languages. That is Iranian, Armenian, Albanian and Greek. Now, as per linguists, in the homeland, you know, there were 12 branches. All of them started leaving in different uh, periods. And finally, only five branches were left in that homeland, which they place in South Russia, of course. And those five were Indo-Aryan, Iranian, Albanian, Armenian and Greek. But we have no record that they were ever there. Whereas we have in the Rigveda the record that they were all there in the Punjab during this battle. On one side was the Indo-Aryans, the Sudhas and the Bharatas. On the other side were the Iranians, Greeks, Armenians and Albanians. And then the book 7 is the crucial book in which they are driven west and they move west. And then they spread into Afghanistan. The Greeks and uh, Albanians, Armenians move much further west. The Iranians settle down in Afghanistan. Then they start spreading into Central Asia and Iran and uh, other areas right up to Europe. So it was the starting point for all these Western mig migrations of the Anus, which is the last four other branches other than Indo-Aryan. So, so what, what, what would be the most significant aspect for us from the point of view, let's say if somebody was to say from an OIT or an AIT point of view, yeah. what stands out with this, uh, you know, this particular battle, Varshagira battle? Yeah, yeah. That is because, see, this Dasharadne battle, I have dealt with so many times in all my books. The Varshagira, I just mentioned in passing, because it is found in the extreme northwest, beyond the Sarayu. That is in the heart of Afghanistan. And uh, uh, now, this is exact, and this uh, battle is important because it is recorded in both the Iranian records as well as in this Rigveda, in, only in 1.100, the 100th hymn of the first book. And it is found mentioned beyond in the battle beyond the Sarayu in book four, because where it refers to Sahadev and Somaka, the descendants of Sudas. Now they were the one who carried forward their uh, ancestors' battles into the right into the heart of Afghanistan, and they are rem remembered in the Avestan texts also in the Shahnameh and in uh, various other Avestan texts. Uh, Shahnameh is not an Avestan text, I mean, but it represents traditions which were maintained there, like our Puranas, and uh, it is mentioned in Avestan texts that uh, some uh, the enemies included, you know, Humayaka, that is Somaka, and Hoshdeva, uh, uh, that is Sahadeva. Because Saha will become Hosh, house in uh, Iran in the equivalent. So you have these two names. And then all kinds of other references are there which prove that uh, they are referring to that same battle. We say it is a battle between Aryas and, uh, you know, the others, the Dasas. They say it is a battle between the Aryas and the Tuiryas. So, for them, the Aryas are the Iranians. For us, the Aryas are the Vedic people, for the Rigveda, I mean. 
and the rigveda calls them the dasas they call the the vedic people the turiyas so this battle is recorded and uh, up till now i had never given much importance to means i had not gone into detail about this but then someone one of my the readers of my blog raised a very i had written an article on the logic of rigvedic geography now someone said that uh, and you know i had gone by uh, ml bhargava's book on rigvedic geography where he had identified the sarayu with the siritoi now i always found it doubtful but then i thought it's not important and i ignored it whereas you know people identified with the haroyu of afghanistan but when someone raised that point i realized that something which i had been trying to put off you know because it would mean you know saying yes i have to change all what i have written in all these books so then i took the chance and i made those changes yes that uh, sarayu does refer to the haroyu it was given the name of the sarayu of the uh, avadh region by this these ikshwakus who went and settled there and that is the sarayu which is mentioned as haroyu in the uh, avesta and that is the area in which the battle final battle took place okay so, so that sir, is why in that article i have given all the details of whatever is required all right so sir now so, another article i must mention that uh, the enemies of sudhas in the uh, in bat- in his nah. battles you know all the time i have only been talking about his dasharatna battle because it was important for indo european history you know those four last branches are there in that battle fighting with him yeah but it mentions sudhas moving east and west so who and it mentioned many other enemies of sudhas who are not among these iranians armenians etc so and uh, so i decided now let me go into all his enemies east and west and when you see his enemies east they are purely indian names you know matsyas and uh, uh, i've given them in that article whereas the battle on the battle of the uh, on the parushni in punjab all the enemies have names of the ancient uh, indo european tribes so there's such a stark difference between so that explains even these new words you know the new words which are found only in india those which are found among the avesta and mitanni also there was a area uh, rigvedic area spread out oh, and, and probably had an eastern and a western uh, dimension so to say all right okay so sir now i'm going to ask you a few questions from the live uh, viewers uh, who are watching this right now so yeah. shri hari has said in talagiri ji's opinion how strong is the evidence for out of india all the way to europe also what is his opinion about dr semenenko's thesis so sir dr semenenko i think is this russian archaeologist who has come up with uh, his new paper where he has said that actually the chariot that they keep talking about in synthasta is actually not a chariot and uh, uh the chariot is actually the one they found in sanoli but obviously he is one archaeologist so we don't know what the entire uh, archaeological evidence uh, or the the entire orthodoxy in, inside the science of archaeology talks about it but then uh, i'll still go back to the first question so how strong do you think is the evidence for an out of india theory all the way to europe now i think what he's trying to ask you is so we know from the rigveda we know a lot about the journey from say haryana right up to say iran but yeah. there is a gap right sir i mean we know the internal european journey through archaeological evidence and through textual inscriptions which is actually mentioned a lot by mallory and anthony in their books too but the point is there is still that gap so what do you think is there a gap or we can draw a complete picture or you intend to draw a complete picture about these movements see unless i acquire a crystal ball or i uh, invent a time machine and go back into the past to see i cannot tell anything about something which is not recorded i cannot make up my own stories and i refuse to do it so let us say for so many years for two centuries people have believed in an aryan invasion theory based on nothing 
based on no data no evidence just conjectures and this thing and now that i have given proof linguistic proof textual proof and many other kinds of proof now suddenly everyone wants me to give a step by step you know uh, a chart of the way they went i don't have it i will only tell as much as i can if you can uh, if anyone can fit this all this data into any aryan invasion theory let them try to do it because it only fits into an out of india theory and that is all, as much as i can do i cannot provide a complete uh, this thing you know i will not claim to be able to uh, be knowing everything whatever i know i have put into if if someone ask me something i know i will tell but i can i do not know everything all right so sir shriram prasanna asked 3000 bc of old rigvedic books period which collides with indus valley civilization then when yeah. has the indus started or or if the new books are from or, and are the new books from 2000 bc i think that's what he's trying to ask yeah, yeah. from the question no so the new books are definitely from at least 2500 bc because as i said the mitanni people took that culture of the new rigveda with them and they are already there in 1750 bc in iraq and syria they were uh, and uh, they have already become west asianized now how what is people's conjecture of how many years they must have taken to reach there it can't be 10 15 20 uh, 50 years also it is you know backed by the fact that you know elephants indian elephants appear in west asia and i have given so many quotations in my article on the elephant where all those elephants are found in uh, carvings in egyptian uh, car carvings depicting the mitanni people who are presenting those indian elephants to the egyptian pharaoh so they appear in iraq only after the mitanni arrived there before that no archaeologists have found any elephants there after they found these elephants and they tried to you know classify them as syrian elephants but they are indian elephants then second thing is peacocks you know that peacock motif there is one article by some um, i have quoted that article about the peacock in uh, mesopotamia and uh, west asia it makes its appearance also in that same period and now as you said there is this uh, evidence you said 8000 years the cattle has started spreading but actually in the west asian they think it has been found around 2500 bc so you see it is around 2500 bc that the indian cattle the indian elephant and the indian peacock start appearing in west asia so that is when they went so if they went already taking the culture of the new rigveda with them so when they were leaving india obviously they the new rigveda uh, period had already started and since there is such a chronological gulf between the old and the new rigveda the old rigveda goes back much further beyond that so 3000 i, I don't i won't say 3000 it may be much more it may be just three but it is at least 3000 minimum all right okay so sir sudhindra has this question he says do you think the vedas changed as per the ruler of the time for example in the puranas pralhad is taught the, the vedas even after hiranyakashipa has subjugated the devas and ensures all prayers are to him no the rigvedas were uh, rigveda and most of the vedic texts were preserved as they were so you know when the europeans came they, these were texts were not written down they wrote them down from you know uh, listening to recitations right from kashmir to kanyakumari and gujarat to assam and all the priests who recited these said recited exactly almost exactly the same thing so that is why we have it in written form now from if they carried it on for so many thousands of years without any change of course changes have taken place but they have taken place till 1500 bc and after that a few minor there are five or six verses i have mentioned those verses which are 
added at the time of uh, which are not mentioned in the other part of the rigveda but they are found now in the present rigveda so those verses obviously were added later so there was not much change made after 1500 bc all right so now yavanas and romakas and tolas and cheryas and that also we don't yeah true so now gorav chamaniya has asked this question sir he says does the rigveda describe the sindhu saraswati civilization in the hymns and verses because uh, i think he is uh, repeating it a lot of geography makes sense when you read it so uh so i guess what he's trying to say is that uh, does the rigveda talk about the geography of the landmass that is this india or does it talk about the geography of a landmass that is outside india i guess that's what the question is i'm assuming because it was not very clear see the total geographical horizon of the rigveda extends from western up and northernmost madhya pradesh in the east to afghanistan and then i have shown the uh, in detail the how the progression from east to west within this area takes place in the rigveda so you see nothing beyond the outside this area is known even afghanistan its rivers and its places appear only in the new books before that it is all haryana uh, western uttar pradesh and then slowly 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 you know uh, areas of the punjab appearing into the horizon mm. okay two people have asked a similar question uh, oh i guess santosh itself has asked Santosh says Bhimbetaka caves have horse depictions. So how does that fit into your theory of India not having horses? Which What? there are caves called the Bhimbetaka caves. Yeah, they have pictures or depictions on the caves of horses. See, this is a, a, a reference that I myself jumped eagerly at and I examined it. but the bimbetka caves you know have uh, drawings covering a large right from 1000 10000 of years i think or 10000 something right up to uh, almost the period bc so which drawing is of which and no one says that these uh, particular drawings of horses are of that period in any case as i said we know that the dravidian languages have their own words for horse so whether that was actually this particular species of horse there were other species we don't know so we can only speculate on all these things you know but yeah uh, and not, not only that uh, so the very specific horse we're talking about is of a particular uh, equid uh, type and Which not is, only yeah, that it is domestic yeah and and domesticated and non domesticated horse there are many yeah. other things so we can't make out that just from a cave drawing and it was known from the very oldest part of the rigveda as a northern animal a rare animal which was a uh, very highly prized it was known from the very beginning of the rigveda but it became common much later like soma which is from the mountains of afghanistan and uh, swat area and all that that was also known from the very beginning but it was a northern import northwestern import and it was only in the uh, new period that it became very very common and by 2000 bc it had almost died out so in the 10th book you see it is uh, uh, slowly becoming a thing of the past after people are not even sure what soma is there are disputes about what exactly it represents and all that so so one more question sir sonu kannan has asked this question so i guess he was listening to your views on the dasharatne and the other battle that we discussed today yeah. so he is saying that any idea talagiri what are talagiri ji's views does he have any idea why these battles took place and why are they mentioned in the rigveda he's talking See, about both the dasharatne and the varshagira battle i guess yeah 
well it is a luck that they have mentioned them because you see they must be have in many other battles which they have not mentioned and uh, the thing is why have they mentioned battles well they were human beings as i said it is not gods who are uh, dictating uh, uh, sacred hymns you know they were priests uh, uh, writing uh, sometimes criticizing rival priests praising the kings who gave them gifts now we know in the courts of kings how there are uh, courtiers who praise the king for giving them gifts and then the king gets so pleased he throws some more gold necklaces at them and all so without going to that extent you know many of the hymns are of that kind they are called danastutis where they praise the king for giving so many uh, cattle or whatever to them there are other than one danastuti in fact criticized the king saying that uh, he is very stingy he has given less so they were very very human beings the uh, rishis there are in fact there are many i don't know if i should say this but there are many uh, hymns and verse, verses which have not been translated by griffith he puts them in his appendix and translate them in that appendix in latin so because they contain some kind of extremely erotic uh, things so he with his victorian mindset probably griffith didn't want to use those words and all so he translated into latin so that only the scholars would read it not the common people so uh, you see every aspect of human life is covered by them so battles are also part of that they were not saints who did not do battle and all they were not uh, uh, ahimsavadis or something in fact as i said sudas in that that battle sudas was is not my idea of a hero because he was a conqueror who was trying to expand his kingdom my sympathies are with the 10 tribes who who are being attacked in their own area by sudas and his conquering tribes so uh, it's not necessary that we uh, that is one more point but uh, not pertaining to the rigveda you know we take our old texts and then we take sides and decide this is a good person that is a bad person you know yudhishthira was a good person karna was a bad person and so on so i don't think we should take sides we should be logical in our uh, analysis of their uh, motives or whatever all right so sir just the last couple of questions so love suneja asks why when did the vedic culture start mixing with the culture of the south was it peaceful or not no i have written two blogs on this about the dravidians you see um, uh, the indus valley culture the harappan culture in its heyday the mature harappan culture is identical with the new period of the rigveda now the center of the rigveda as we know was in haryana and uh, neighboring areas but it extended afterwards to the whole of the harappan area but the purus were not in those areas there were the yadus and the anus but they were part of that same culture so you do not find as detailed descriptions of those areas or their culture as some people want to know why they don't refer to certain aspects of uh the harappan culture etc but uh, two one very significant thing is that it mentions two words bekanata and mana which have been identified as babylonian words mana is a major unit of measurement i think it is even used today and um, uh bekanata means a money lender now both these words have been identified as babylonian words and both pertain to trade you know unit of measurement a money lender who lends to traders and that is because we have archaeological evidence that the mature harappan culture had trading links with sumeria babylonia all those west asian iraq and uh, iraq areas basically mesopotamian areas so here we have this evidence not in uh, some later text but in the new rigveda in book 8 book 8 is the one which refers to all this book 8 has some names in common with the mitanni kings like you know uh, there is a name uh, indrota which is not found in any other text anywhere it is found in book 8 it is found in the name of a mitanni king so you see the 
they had a trade and contact with the with west asia in the period of book 8 and that is when uh, these babylonian words enter now if that is the case and I, in my article on the elephant i have shown how elephant ivory was being carried by harappan traders right up till the coast of portugal so if that is so could they have been totally unaware of south india obviously they were not and uh, i have shown in those two articles that there were dravidian priests people from the south like see ram uh, every sect starts in a certain area but then people from all over india go there and take diksha and become part of that uh, cult or that uh, religion or that sect so there are people in the rigveda there are composers like irimbitta and uh, uh, the and agastya agastya you know all those later stories about him going to the south and settling down he was a southern rishi from the very beginning he was a tamilian rishi of tamil nadu and his descendants came and uh, came into the rigvedic area and they became rigvedic priests and then afterwards all these puranic stories about him going to the south and all that came into being so the name actually has a tamil origin not a sanskrit one and the irimbitti in fact there is a place called irimbiyam in the coast of kerala so and the uh, special thing is that certain there are for example two words just like bekanat and uh, uh, manar babylonian words there are two words in the rigveda which are very definitely dravidian words one is kana you will use it today also kana means someone who is cross eyed or you know is either weird wo kaniya hai and uh, second word is the puj puja puja was with flowers you do puja of a murti this concept is not in any of the vedic texts and this root itself the root puj it is found only once in the rigveda and both these words kana and uh, puja are used by this rishi who is called irimbitta in one of them and uh, shirimbitta in another so you see dravidian rishis had gone from the south and taken part in that culture and now so, uh, 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 important thing is that the, since the new books of the rigveda go back beyond 2000 bc book 8 etc so this gives us evidence of tamil before 2000 bc in these words like puja and uh, 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 this um, kana and many other words are there also i have given a list of some of those words see before this i used to resist the idea that dravidian words could be there because you know it uh, they try to fit it into the theory that dravidians were there in the indus valley before the aryans apparently came from out and then they conquered them which is why there are dravidian words but it is not so it is found only in the new rigveda in uh, and they were brought by these rishis who came came from the south and became part of the vedic culture fair enough and and that that's uh, that's exactly what has always been the problem i guess you know a lot of these questions even today in the live chat a lot of people have answer asked questions and i notice a lot of these people and their questions stem from the, pro- the from the problem that nobody understands the chronology of the rigveda at the moment you understand the chronology of the rigveda as you have described in your books with the old rigveda and the new rigveda the entire thing gets clarity because every time these questions are raised whether about the horse or about dravidian loan words or about many other things it is always falling into a trend where x falls into the old rigveda and the rest falls into the new rigveda and i guess until and unless people don't uh, read your books or uh, actually go through them they're actually not going to understand this subject at all in my See, opinion the old rigveda is so different it does not have any of these avastan mitani words it does not have reference to spokes camels or donkeys it does not have reference to these dravidian words it does not have those two babylonian words it is represents a completely different pristine ancient area before this 
whole uh, common culture came into being you know it uh, and um, it does not have the word saman it does not have the word yadushi does not have the word atharvan it is completely a different culture and i have given that long list of, even the word brahmana it started only in the uh, middle period you see mm-hmm. uh, so many basic words as in the name of a priest not as the name of a caste incidentally as one of the uh, functions of a uh, someone performing a rigvedic uh, ritual so you see this um uh, the old rigveda represents a completely different epoch from all the rest of whatever you are discussing whether it is mitanni or babylonians or south indians or uh, atharvaveda or anything yeah so <clears throat> somebody has said yeah, that I'll, about i'll the... just point out that out of 280 hymns in the old rigveda i have given this uh, in three sections i have given long lists of words and how where they occur not one of those words occurs in those 280 hymns whereas in the new hymns out of um, 686 hymns 660 hymns have these words mm-hmm. no sorry it's not 660 uh, 671 671 out of 686 hymns have these words and out of the 62 redacted hymns 51 have these words whereas out of the 280 old hymns in the old books not a single hymn has any of these words in it which will show the wide gulf between the periods so, so somebody uh, the same person who asked the bim the horse question has said about the dasharatna patil talagiri sir said the sudhas attacked the others but i i read the other way around i mean i don't know where he has read and what i mean if one reads the rigveda it is clear as daylight who was attacking whom so i i guess uh, tejasvi you need to read the rigveda uh, is all i can say so sir before we wrap things up uh, what are so what's next uh, in your mind so any particular project that you're looking at or you're going to dig further in this uh, out of india uh, subject well i don't know project suddenly come up like i had not thought of this until just in during this lockdown period all these uh, you know buried topics were unearthed and then given a complete uh, reno- sort of reno- renovated look sort of and this thing which i had been after you know this uh, old new words business is something which i took took up just now then this genetics thing was the, my last year's book was about that then uh, you know numbers uh, when i was in school i used to like to learn numbers in different languages 1 to 100 i had learned in all kinds of languages red indian languages african languages australian aboriginal all the european asian languages at least in 100 languages i knew numbers 1 to 100 and then i had just written them down in a book so now i decided let me put it all on the internet so i can throw away that old notebook and i put it up and while doing it i discovered this new strong evidence for the uh, out of india theory in the indo european numbers you know that uh, blog of mine we have discussed i think in our last uh, yes interview. So yeah. you see, uh, you never know what new thing will come out of uh, what uh, whatever you are studying. At the moment, my only idea is that this particular article on this uh, new and uh, old, I intend to broaden it into a book, adding all kinds of other information about the Rigvedic vocabulary. That is all my right. present idea at any rate. All right, awesome. So, guys, uh, I guess it's time to wrap things up. So, before we wrap things up, I want to tell you that each and every blog that we have discussed. uh on today's discussion i have put a link for the blog post uh, shrikant sir's blog post in the description of the podcast so if you're watching it live right now or you're going to be listening to an audio version later on or if you're watching this video later on too just go on the description of the podcast click on it 
and you can read all the blogs they are available and you can even comment and shrikant sir is very open and happy to you know reply to the comments i have seen he replies uh, to many comments on his blog post also i would insist that you read shrikant ji's book so they are easily available on aditya prakashan's website so i have put up a link for adityaprakashan.com too you can just go on aditya prakashan and you can buy all his four books they are available there you can purchase each and every book i insist if you really are interested in this subject you have to read the books also if you want to know even more about this subject you can go on patreon.com and become a subscriber to my patreon where i have done not just i have not just covered shrikant ji's book but i have covered bb lal's books i have covered danino's books i'm covering mallory's book right now i'm going to be covering dave david anthony i've even covered a lot of papers i think the recent narasimhan papers also we have covered and we have covered multiple other things we even tried to cover a lot of things that tony joseph has talked about not just from shrikant sir's point of view but from other people's point of view also other than that also if you want to support this podcast you can start by just liking this videos you know sharing it with other people or you can become a member on youtube uh i guess uh, i'll leave it at that and um, on that note i'll say namaste once again uh, uh, shrikant sir thanks a lot for coming on the podcast it's always a pleasure to talk to you and i know this won't be our last conversation i'm going to talk to you again and again thank you all right guys take care i'll see you guys next time until then uh, have have a good time i'll see you on the next podcast